This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. How'd you like to have somebody stick a mic in your face and ask you, what is heaven like? You know, there are some people who believe that heaven is a place that is outside of the boundaries of time. And because of that, they believe that all of us will arrive at the same time. Regardless of what period of history you die in, when you step into heaven, everyone steps into heaven at the same moment because you're stepping outside of time into eternity. You know, years ago, I shared with the church a story that, that I had that kind of is along those very lines. It actually, it was a dream that I had of going into eternity. And when I got there, as I was arriving, Bill and Bill were arriving with me, which first of all, took me by surprise, being that they're so much older than I am. <laughs> I would have expected them to have died long before me and have been heaven veterans by now. But there they were, and so we were high-fiving and celebrating when a celestial angel approached us and said, you know, you need to wait right here, but when your name is called, uh, you need to step into a small room and wait there uh, for some further instructions. And so my name happened to be called first. And as I'll talk later, heaven is full of surprises. I walked into the room, and as I walked in there, a door opened, and in walked this vicious, mad dog foaming at the mouth. And this voice said, because you have sinned before heaven 10 years with this mad dog. Bill Wellens was asked to come in next and uh, he walked into the room and door opened and this giant crazed grizzly bear entered. And a voice said, Bill Wellens, because you've sinned before heaven 10 years with this grizzly bear. And then Bill Parkinson was called in, and he walked in to this uh, room, and the door opened, and in stepped Julia Roberts. <laughs> and the voice said, Julia Roberts, because you sinned. <laughs> That's right, 10 years with Bill Parkinson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that story. I do. I just, I just love it. And I can't wait to tell it again 10 years from now. Well, that's just a dream. But our purpose here this morning is to talk about what is heaven like? It's a powerful, it's a humbling question. Peter Kreft, who is the professor of philosophy at Boston University, recently made what I think is a penetrating observation. He said this, Next to the idea of God, the idea of heaven is the greatest idea that has ever entered the heart of man, woman, or child. C.S. Lewis put it this way, he said, heaven is the secret that we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. The writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, said that eternity has been set in our heart. 
We cannot hide it. And yet it seems that for modern day man, with apologies to C.S. Lewis, heaven is more hidden than ever before. Perhaps you um, saw the cover story of Time magazine some few months back. And on it was a very penetrating question, a man standing on a cloud, looking out, gazing into the distance with the caption next to him saying, does heaven really exist? Does it even exist? Time declared that heaven was, quote, a wall. It's not that people don't still believe it. In fact, a recent Gallup poll said that 81% of all Americans believe in a heaven. It's just that the concept of heaven, the idea of heaven, the reality of heaven, the tangency of heaven is foggier than it's ever been in our history. So foggy it's to the point of being really irrelevant in everyday life. You know, that's a sad place for the second greatest idea that's ever entered into the heart of mankind, isn't it? for it to be reduced to the place of irrelevancy. But for modern day man, and certainly for Christians, this is more and more, it seems, the case as we focus more and more on the here and now and building our own little kingdom on earth. Whether we know it consciously or not, to marginalize our ultimate destination into a vague meaninglessness undercuts one of the most powerful motivations for living right now every day, with every decision. Without a heaven, without that concept, without it being powerful in our psyche, it makes modern man think that everything that happens right now is of ultimate importance to him because that's all there is. And when all that there is is now, human history is replete with civilizations that don't function very well when now is all there is. But this is surely where we find ourselves today. One of our world's most preeminent historians, Paul Johnson, has said, heaven as presented by Judeo-Christian tradition today lacks genuine incentive. Indeed, it lacks definition of any kind. It is the great whole in our present day theology. Heaven is to the Christian church a lot like what was above the beanstalk in the story about Jack and the Beanstalk. You know, if you're a little kid, you remember that very powerful story where you're focused on Jack on earth and the most riveting imagery of that little fairy tale is the beanstalk. And they're moving up and down the beanstalk, but what you don't ever get a picture of is what's above it. You know, heaven is like that for us. We know that God comes from heaven to earth in the form of Jesus Christ. We know that we're going to heaven. We know about how to get to heaven. But what's actually there is a blank. With no incentive, with no powerful motivation to affect everyday life now. And yet, in the midst of that fog, the Bible keeps kind of crying out a very clear, powerful statement, to die, listen, to die is gain. That's either a statement of madness, it's either a statement of absolute arrogance, or it's true. And that's what we want to look at 
here this morning. So let me begin by making three simple observation about observations about what in heaven's name has happened to heaven. And here's what I think has happened. First of all, some of us have allowed a childish caricature of heaven to bore us away from it. Think about it for a moment. Who here wants to sit on a cloud and play a harp forever? Does that really motivate you? How about singing in a celestial choir 24 hours a day for the next 10,000 years? Now I'm all for being part of a heavenly choir and sometimes in our liturgies, in our hymns, we talk about praising God standing around His throne and that's all well and good. But is that all that there is to it? How about wearing just a white robe forever? Think you'll ever get tired of that? That doesn't excite us. It doesn't compel us. You know why? Because they're not true. But for most of us, that's the only imagery we have about heaven. Childhood caricatures that are either exaggerated to the point of falsehood or that have been reduced down for a child's understanding, but it doesn't motivate an adult to living. And that's the problem with heaven today. We have these stick figure lean-to caricatures that sometimes are not even worth having. Secondly, some of us are too busy trying to build a heaven here to really think about heaven then. As C.S. Lewis put it, we are content with making mud pies here and far too easily pleased than to actually look to heaven and believe that there is more. So we build our kingdoms here because we think is, at least from a practical bottom line standpoint, that that's all that there is, is here. Thirdly, some of us, even some of us who are Christians, have never come to terms with heaven as a real reality. We acknowledge it. But you know what everyone has to ultimately face? Because one, there will be a day, a time, it's probably already come for many of us when we've lost a friend or a loved one, but there are these moments where the powerful reality of death confronts us and we have to deal with what now? But you know, sometimes heaven is to our religion what an aspirin is to our headache. All an aspirin is to a headache is relief from thinking about the headache. And sometimes all, all that heaven is for Christians is a relief from having to think about death. But as far as being a place, a motivating place, the ultimate destination where our citizenship is actually found, well, we haven't thought about that. It's like Time Magazine said in the article that I just showed you a moment ago. It says, in today's churches... Heaven is preserved like a bug in amber. It's prehistoric and it's dead as far as a living reality. Do you believe in heaven? Do you believe it's a real place? Is it a place that you long for? Is it a place that you have as your end in mind? Does it motivate you? Has it captured your imagination and heart as a reality to the place that when it comes to making a choice between sin or righteousness, it actually has an effect? It's a great question, isn't it? For it to be that, we need to know what heaven is really like.
I want to show you some people who could answer yes to all those questions. It's found in Hebrews 11. You might just turn there for a moment. They could answer yes to every one of the questions. They had a solid concept. They longed for it. They lived for it. They knew what was there. And it had an impact on their everyday life. And as you turn to Hebrews 11, one of the things that you'll notice is that you're turning to that famous chapter called the Hall of Faith because listed within this chapter are all kinds of figures that you and I admire from a distance. They live lives of courage and consistency and boldness and they persevered and they did great things for God and God did great things for them. But it makes this statement about them that suddenly brings this issue of heaven right to the frontal part of our brain. Look at verse 13. Here's what it said, because it tells us how they did all those things. It says, and all these died, all these great saints died without receiving the promise, but having seen them, they saw them, and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles, where? On earth, for those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking not just a country, I think that's a poor translation, another world of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of this, other, this same world from which they went out, they would, not have, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, what they desire, what they desired their whole life was a better world that is a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God for He has prepared a city for them. I want you to notice the first thing that jumps out of this passage is the answer to that very important question. How were these people, Noah and Abraham and Moses and Gideon and Samuel and David, how were these people able to lead such powerful, courageous, consistent lives? The answer's there. And it's clear. It's because they here's the key word, really believed in a place called heaven. As better than this life, as bigger than this life, as an answer to this life, and as a world that would make this life meaningful. They really believed that in the tough times when their marriages were struggling, when they faced tragedies of death, when God didn't answer their most fervent prayers, they really believed in a better place with better promises that were bigger than this life, and they did not consider this place home. That's how they did it. Notice in verse 13 that though God answered many promises of these saints, and they, you know, right above it mentions Noah and Abraham, and Noah was delivered the promise that he would be delivered through the flood, and he was. Abraham was promised a son, and he received that son in his old age. But as good as the answers to those promises were, the bigger promises, the better promises, were not answered for them. The ones of eternal life, the ones of a kingdom of God, the ones in which they would see God face to face and have this living dynamic relationship, those were never answered, those were never fulfilled in this life. The bigger promises of their faith went unfulfilled. But were they bothered by that? Passage says, no. At least not according to verse 13. It says, and I want you to listen closely, that they still saw these promises as real. 
They still welcomed them. Notice verse 13. From a distance. They had no doubt about them. And they confessed with their mouth and heart that this place called earth was not their home. I love that. Because even if you put a baseball field in a corn patch in Iowa for them, if you would have said, is this heaven? They would have said, no. This is just earth. And you know what heaven isn't? As good as this was for the film, heaven isn't going back to childhood to be reconciled with my earthly father. That's not heaven. And yet that's as far as most of us can think. Just to reclaim the past in some way. To make good on things not given to me. To reclaim relationships that I never had. Now that's important to deal with. And many of you men who've been in men's fraternity know the past is important. But heaven is not going to the past and finding dad, my earthly dad. Heaven is going forward to be connected with the ultimate father for an eternity. In a world that's so far beyond our imagination is it's only presented as a mystery in the pages of Holy Writ. Earth was not their home. They confessed a greater reality it was something, as verse 16 says, that God had prepared for them. And out of that very real, very clear, very powerful idea, notice the effect on them. And this is the key to the whole passage, so you might underline it. It's just the opening words of verse 13. They died in faith. Now, I want you to know what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that at the very last breath they were still believing in God. No, that's a summary statement of a whole life. They died after a lifetime of courage, after a lifetime of perseverance, bold moves, godly values, keeping their priorities right, they died because heaven and the thought of that place and their citizenship there and their ultimate destination had a powerful impact on the way they live now and the choices that they made. They didn't have to have it all. You know, the whole thing, have it all, you can have it all, you know where that comes from? For very, an, a very insidious value that says this is all there is, so you better get it. But let me tell you, if you believe that one day all the things that you miss will not only be reclaimed, but even more so, then the fact that you're not going to go a certain place or have a certain thing, that's not the point of life. The point of life is what God wants to do with me. And all those things that distract us from that central focus is only because we think that's all there is. Does that make sense to everybody? And that's why heaven is important. Because we're expecting the city that God has prepared for us. And that's why I wanted to offer you just this one major point here this morning. It is a healthy thing for every Christian to have a compelling imagery of heaven. The Scripture presents it that way. You're not going to know all that it's about. But we must have some compelling imagery of heaven, adult-wise, that helps us and encourages us in time of need or struggle or temptation. Because we're living for a heavenly kingdom in which our citizenship has been placed and this earth is not ours. And it's not meant to fulfill everything. It's not meant to give you everything. This is a fallen world. It's not heaven. So what is heaven really like? 
I began the message by saying that's a very powerful and humbling question. Because heaven is like a thousand piece puzzle that's impossible to complete in this life. At best, all we're going to do is get some of the pieces, but get some very powerful glimpses. And what I want to do here this morning is to be sure that you leave with at least six of the major puzzle pieces. Just to get a glimpse, just to get a glimmer of what's out ahead. So let me offer these six so you can be sure that you have them. First, the Scripture says, and all of these are the Scripture because that's the only thing I know for sure. The Scripture says that heaven will be a place of reconciliation, namely of this life's loose ends. Doesn't it feel good that all the things that you think you have to tie up, that there is a place that does ultimately tie them up? I want to give you three that you can just think about. There are a lot more, but at least these three came to my mind. Tenor heaven is to move from partial to full understanding. All the questions, and I've got a lot of them, by the way, all the objections, all the speculations that you had about this life will finally have a resolution. I love C.S. Lewis's statement when he was asked to describe heaven and he didn't give much of an answer, but one of the things he said at this moment, he said that he expected that when he first stepped into heaven and looked around, and had been granted this full understanding, these would be the first words out of his lips. <laughs> of course. That's what full understanding gives you. It all makes sense about things that you don't understand, about questions that are much bigger than you that you'll have no resolution. 1 Corinthians 13 says, in that day we shall know just as we have been fully known from partial to full understanding. Secondly, to enter heaven is to move from erratic to perfect justice. And that feels good too. Before our lives are done, you and I will witness a thousand injustices. We will see lives cut off tragically and we will say, why? And our words will just filter across the plains with no answer back because there is no answer now. This is earth. We will see bad things happen to good people and we can't answer why. I get regularly put on a spot as a pastor to answer that question. And I'm going to tell you, there is no answer apart from another dimension and another world. We will see good things being given unfairly to bad people. And we will want to shake our fist and rail against God. What are you doing? Why can't you do more now? That's our question. And we can get bitter, and we can get hard, and we can turn our face away from God. But listen, heaven is God's document to us that He's planning to do more than we've ever imagined. Do we understand that? That all the injustices, that all the lives cut tragically short, that all the wrongs done and all the wrongs gotten away with, that somehow we believe those are just going to filter as loose ends floating in the breeze in eternity? No. What lies before us? In fact, one of the first things that happens in heaven is all the loose ends are drawn together and they're tightened by God of perfect justice who says, you know, at the beginning of heaven is perfect justice from erratic to perfect justice. That's heaven. Thirdly, 
To enter heaven is to move from foolish faith to complete vindication. You know the one thing that's not going to be said in heaven? No one will ever say again. You don't really believe that, do you? Won't that feel good? It won't be a matter of questioning faith. Faith won't even be required. It'll all be just intense, glorious reality. Heaven will be a place where all the loose ends gets connected. Secondly, heaven will be a place of altered states. The first is we'll have new bodies. Doesn't that feel good? I can't wait to trade in this Ford Pinto. <laughs> you know, that's how a lot of us look in life. Have you ever seen a 1971 Ford Pinto driving around Little Rock? You know, the wheel caps are off. It's blowing oil out the back. You know, the windows are rolled down because they won't roll up. <laughs> and it's just sputtering. You think, man, that thing is a goner. You know, that's how we look at the end of life. A Ford Pinto. You know the first thing you'll notice about yourself in eternity? You're a Ferrari. <laughs> you are a Ferrari. And what all that means? I have no idea. What does the heavenly body mean? You know, God just gives you that delicious first taste, a heavenly body, because He wants you to think about it. I love the story of Billy Graham's grandmother whose granddad died at Gettysburg in the Civil War. She was on her deathbed. Billy Graham was standing there next to her. And she looked up right before she took her last breath. And she said, Ben, calling out to her husband, you have your eyes and your legs. And then she died. Because that's what he lost at Gettysburg. The Ferrari. That's part of heaven. It's just a taste to whet your appetite. There'll be new relationships. In fact, one of the most frequent questions that is asked, well, will I ever see my loved ones again? My husband, my daughter, my son, my granddad, my best friend, will I recognize people? You know, the best way to answer that is just think about the character of our God. Just think about Him for a moment. Can you imagine God, whose very nature is relational, even within Himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who created the institution of marriage and family and church to create intense, intimate relationships whose second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. Can you imagine that God hiding people from you? Makes no sense, does it? In fact, it sounds absurd when it's put in that life, and that's because it is absurd. In heaven, not only will be full knowledge, but full relationships with everyone, including your best friend, including your husband including your granddad. That's the glory of heaven, is relationships. We'll also have a new home. Bill quoted in the communion, John 14, where it says, I go to prepare a place for you. But here's what I want to ask you this morning, because this will show how developed your concept of heaven is. Now I want you to think just for a moment. Everybody think, and I'm going to ask you a question. I want to think about what's the first thought you have in your mind. When you go and God says, this is your place, what do you see in your mind? This is your place. Do you see a little room? Some of you see an apartment. Okay? Some of us may think of a nice home, depending on what kind of style home we have, maybe on the beach, up in the mountains, those kind of things. You know, I think we need to think a lot bigger than that. I've even got a biblical resource for that. When God created the first man and first woman, He said, this is your place. You know what he's talking about? A planet. Is that true? 
a whole planet. I want you to multiply and subdue and glorify this world that I've hung out in this vast, lifeless universe for you. Start here and go forth. And if they'd have been righteous, who knows where they would be now? Settlements on Saturn, Pluto, some other star. Who knows? What does that mean? I don't know. But here's what I want you to know. I really believe we need to think bigger than that. I think there's, there's ample evidence when God says, this is your place. He may be pointing to a universe, a star system, bigger and more thrilling than you ever imagined. Third, I want you to know that heaven will be a place of personal rewards. There are two kinds of rewards in heaven. According to the Scripture, the first is the reward for our faith in Jesus Christ in this life. And in this life, we will be awarded the place called heaven. That's just for having faith in Jesus Christ. But there's a second kind of reward, and the Bible talks a lot about that, and it's for our faithfulness to Jesus Christ in this life, where we will be awarded the applause of heaven, specifically God's applause and whatever else goes with it. And we're encouraged to think about that there are other things that go with that applause as well. You know, some have felt that thinking about living life in such a way as to get the applause of God is selfish. And C.S. Lewis was one of those. And he pondered that. And in his book, The Weight of Glory, he wrote this. When I began to look into this matter, I was shocked to find such different Christians as John Milton and Thomas Aquinas taking heavenly glory quite frankly and specifically in the sense of our fame. Fame with God and then when I had thought it over, I saw that this view was scriptural. Nothing can eliminate from the parable the divine accolade, well done, thou good and faithful servant. With that, a good deal of what I had been thinking all my life fell down like a house of cards. I suddenly remembered that no one can enter heaven except as a child, and nothing is so obvious in a child as its great and undisguised pleasure in wanting to be praised. Not only in a child either, but also in a dog or a horse. Apparently what I had mistaken for humility had all these years prevented me from understanding what is in fact the humblest, the most childlike, the most creaturely of pleasures. The pleasure of a beast before men, a child before its father, a pupil before his teacher, a creature before its creator. To have pleased God. To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness to be loved by God for our work. As an artist delights in his work, or a father in a son seems a weight of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. Did you know that every day the decisions you make are building, if they're done rightly, a weight of glory far beyond all comparison that a heavenly father is sitting there waiting in delight to give you. And yet in making those two distinctions between reward for faith and reward for faithfulness, there's a warning, isn't there? Have you already come to that conclusion? You know, it's one thing to stand in heaven, just glad you're there. But you know, it'll be an awful thing just to be there with a period. No reward. No accolade. In fact, it will not only be disappointing, it also can have 
some long-term consequences in eternity. And that brings us to the fourth kind of snapshot of eternity, and it's this. Heaven will be a place of new status. Now, now put in parentheses, not sameness for everyone. I want you to write down two statements underneath this particular uh, concept. Everyone will not be be the same in heaven. That's a childhood fantasy where everybody's on a cloud with a robe, with wings, and a harp, and we just sit there. Take that thought away. The Scripture is very clear. Heaven will not be the same for everyone. And here's secondly, to add to that, much of our status in heaven is being prepared now by how we live. Because God is grooming you for status and responsibility, and He awards your status. He entrusts His worlds to those who've proven the most faithful in this life and withholds it from those who are less faithful. You want to see that in Scripture? Turn to Matthew 19. What a wonderful statement the Apostle Peter makes because he's in the midst of a very tiresome, intense ministry with Jesus Christ. And there are times he gets a glimpse that it's going to work, and there are other times he gets frustrated because it feels like it's not going to work. (laughs) You know? And in this particular moment, he's in a moment of weakness or reflection or contemplation because he thinks of all that he gave up, the fishing business that he left, the endless hours he's put in, and some people seem to be now getting ahead, and he's walking with Jesus Christ, and he makes the statement, I'd like to make it times. Well, I do make it times. Look at verse 27. Peter answers Jesus Christ, and he looks at him and he says, and, and he says it with a pitiful kind of style, I think. <laughs> Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And let me tell you, without hesitation, Jesus Christ is going to tell him there's a lot. He's going to say, you're doing the right thing. This is not a fantasy. This is reality. He says, truly, truly, the truth, I say to you that you, have, you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms, businesses, careers, for my sake, shall receive many times as much. Many! And shall inherit eternal life. That's your answer. Now that's good news, isn't it? That tells me that the decision that I make this week when I come to that little crossroad of believing the here and now or believing the ever after, yielding to sin or bending to righteousness, giving up or going on, in those moments, every time, I prove just like a young soldier in training whether I'm worthy of the rank that I'll ultimately achieve. I prove it now. This is my proving ground. And the good news is that God will follow through. He's promised. And it's called a place. Heaven. But there's a warning with that good news. It's the last verse. You see verse 30? Jesus just tacks this on. He says, but many, many, who are first now in eternity will be last. It's not the same. And many who are last will be first. You know, when we came into this world, not one of us got to choose how tall we were going to be, how good looking we were going to be, what talents and intelligence we were going to be, 
We just inherited those, and God uses those in all different fashions, and He has different measurements to see what, how we're going to maximize that state in life. But here's what I want you to know. When you go into eternity, you go into eternity not being given those things so much by God as establishing those things by how you live now. That's what eternity tells us. You're building your rank and status and capacity for responsibility and service to God now. So what do you want to be? A private or a general? You want to sit on a throne and rule a universe? Or you want to be underneath the rank of someone who's proven that he believes it more than you do? That's the challenge that comes out of the pages of Scripture. We live by faith and not by sight. Then I want you to notice number five, heaven is a place of action and new creations. Genesis 1-1 begins with God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation ends with God creating a new heavens and a new earth. Makes me wonder if earth will one day be the center of the universe. Just like Bethlehem was the center of salvation. No name place, but the third rock from the sun, the great surprise. The center of all the universe. A new heavens and new earth. But what that tells us is the very nature of God is to be action-oriented. His very nature is to make new things. And so for any of us who today brought in the thought that heaven is a place of fixed monotony, endless repetition, or a forever church service, would you banish that thought and replace it with what I think is a much more biblical thought, and that is that heaven will be a place of invention, constant invention, all kinds of dynamic action, and constant new things forever. That's the nature of our God. Which brings me to the last point, and that is heaven will be a place of endless surprises. This is the mystery part, but I think we'll have two responses to that, yeses and noes, for all eternity. Here's the way it'll be. No! Yes! No! Yes! That's what it'll be. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 says, Things which the eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which is not even entered into the heart of man, all that I have prepared for those who love me. You know, I love all that because when I'm overwhelmed, that's the words I use. Can you believe all that? I remember standing on the Great Wall of China, watching it go over hill and valley for thousands of miles. And I couldn't even take it in. It was so dramatic. And I turned to my daughter and said, can you believe all that? I remember traveling through the Swiss Alps one day with the snow-capped peaks and the river running below us on this little train and a castle hanging on the side of a cliff with this bright crystal blue sky. The only thing you could say is, look at all that. All that. That's what God has prepared for us who love Him. All that! And you can never fill it all up. Now with saying those things, can I just give you four final thoughts to carry with you today? They would be these. First, we need to get serious about heaven. I hope I've encouraged you just a little bit in that. It's really important to expand your imagery of heaven because the Scriptures invite you to do that for you and for your family. It needs to feel like a real place with vision. And if it has no motivation to you, then start digging. If you've got a young child, we've got a great book in our Cross 
uh, reference bookstore. It's called Heaven Is. It's by our own Linda DeMoss. It's for children under 10. It's just a good way of introducing them with imagery, the whole concept of heaven. But if you want a mind-blowing exploration of heaven by one of the great thinkers of our century, get C.S. Lewis's book in our bookstore, Weight of Glory. Just the weight of glory. And let him begin to take and demystify some of what heaven is, but also open your mind to thoughts you've never had about heaven. This would be a great sermon. This is a book, as I told the staff this week, I'd like to read this book, especially the first chapter, once every year, because it is so encouraging about what eternity is all about. Secondly, let me just mention again that the best life is the one that is lived with the end in mind. They teach that in management. They teach that in result, getting results. But to live life with the end in mind, and the clearer my concept is of heaven, the deeper my conviction is of heaven, the better grasp I'll have on what is really important today because it'll be measured against that. Do I want to give up that for this mud pie? That's what the end in mind is all about. The best living starts backwards with the end in mind. Then thirdly, heaven impresses us with the fact that people are of supreme importance. In Weight of Glory that I just showed you, C.S. Lewis says this. He says there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. I want you to know that the person next to you is not a mere mortal. There are no mere mortals. Nations and cultures and arts and civilizations, those, he says, are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. Next to God, your neighbor. person seated next to you is the, holy, uh, the holiest object that you will ever encounter. Ever. Because that's all that will be there. Dallas Cowboys won't be there. Your company won't be there. But your people, they will be there. And it helps us prioritize people over everything else. And then finally, let us remember that no one will enter heaven who has not first embraced Jesus Christ from the heart. Some of us have witnessed this week the tragedy of the Korean airliner that crashed in Guam. And one of the most riveting, heart-wrenching images that I saw of that tragedy was of this young mother who had come there whose daughter had perished in that flight she was not permitted to actually get to the site, but she was some distance away, but she could see it. And she was on her knees with her hand reaching out, tears running down her face, and she was crying these words. They're words of ultimate reality. She was yelling out, Meredith, where are you? You know, the day is going to come for every person here where someone's going to stand over your casket or grave and they're going to say, where are you? But for those of us who are in Jesus Christ, you'll know better where you are than anyone else. You will be more alive than you've ever been, gawking and wide-eyed at a new world so grand and so glorious and so unexpected that you may just have to grab somebody there and ask them, is this heaven? And if they're smart, they will say, oh no, it's more than that. 
And you'll say, how can that be? And then they'll say to you, because it's yours. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for the wonderful promise, the ultimate promise that You have given us. And this morning, I hope that there would not be a person here who would not think in leaving, if I were to die today, would I have this place? And of course, the real question is, do you have Jesus Christ to take you there? If you don't, please talk to me or someone. Don't let that be a terrible thought. Let that question be a glorious one. But let's talk together. Lord, we give You praise this day. What a wonderful day it is to worship You. The life that You have given us. The hope that You have promised us. We give You praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.